fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist churches. And now, here's Pastor Garrett. Happy Sabbath, saints. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer before we get started. Father, Lord, we come to you today praising your name for so many things. Lord, we want to worship you each and every day. Lord, that's our, our duty and that's our privilege to worship you each and every morning and evening. But Lord, today it's your Sabbath a special day, a day that you have set apart in time, a 24-hour period where we can solely focus upon you and not the things of this life that so often need our attention. Lord, you've not only given us this day, but you've given us a reason to celebrate and rejoice in a living Savior. So Lord, today as we open your word, may we understand and may we do. We pray in your name. Amen. We live every day, but we often don't live for Jesus. We serve a risen Savior, don't we? We serve a Savior that is alive and is well and is busy, and He wants us to live each and every day not just breathing and not just going about our everyday activities, but he longs for us to live for him. A few weeks ago, I was studying the 10 virgins, and of course, I was reminded that even the wise were asleep. If we serve a risen Savior, if we serve a living Savior, then why is it that Christians often seem so dead? If we serve a Jesus that is exciting and we serve a Savior that is personal, why is it that Christians are often very, well, not very personal at all? If we serve a Savior that has good news and peace and joy that passes all understanding, why is it that Christians are often the opposite of that? These are questions that I've often asked myself, not necessarily about other people, but about myself. We serve a Savior that is alive and well, and He longs for us to not only be alive, but He longs for us to be spiritually excited. Do you agree with that? Jesus is coming soon. That is a message that our church has been preaching for decades now. And of course, we've had many messages from this pulpit on this subject. But I'd like to take you to a story today that has to deal not with the second coming of Jesus, but in fact, the first coming of Christ. If you go to Matthew with me, Matthew chapter 2, you'll recognize this story immediately. 
It is one that not just Christians tell, but it's one that we even find in secular homes as well. And most will recognize the story of what happens in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, we find a baby has been born and how exciting that is. But notice what it says here in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now if you would skip down with me to verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When Jesus was born on earth, the prophecies of Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and almost every book of the Old Testament at that time had been predicting the Messiah was coming. Not only that the Messiah was coming, but where he was going to be born. And not just where he was going to be born, but why he was coming at all. And as Jesus was born on earth, with the exception of a few, we find that most didn't recognize it. Now, of course, we know that Mary and Joseph recognized that the birth of Christ was miraculous. It's hard to miss when your wife is pregnant, right? And it's hard to miss if you're pregnant. They were aware that something was taking place. The shepherds, well, they were kind of warned supernaturally, weren't they? But then we see the rest of Israel, the rest of God's chosen people who had been reading and memorizing the prophecies of the text for centuries when Jesus finally came were caught unaware and, in fact, ignorant. Ignorant of the miracle that was being done in the town of David, not just the miracle of the Messiah being born, but the miracle of what he was about to do. And the ones that recognized this miracle from on high were in fact not from among God's chosen people, but from among the Gentiles. There's a lesson to learn there, isn't there? Friends, we have been studying prophecy in our church since the beginning. We were founded on a prophetic movement. We've been singing and we have been talking about the second coming of Jesus for a long time. We recognize that it will come. We recognize the purpose of his coming. And I pray that there are more than just a few that are ready when he comes. We assume that there were three wise men from the east that came to Jesus, right? That's what the song says. That's what's in all the nativity scenes, right? That is the normal narrative. But in Scripture, we find that the number isn't exactly stated. But the reason we assume there are three is because there were three gifts that were given, right? We find that here in verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These men of stature came for many miles to worship at the feet of a baby. 
What humility that those men must have had to come from so far away to worship at the feet of a mere child. But they did it because they recognized what this man was going to do. They recognized that this child was more than just a baby, but in fact was their creator. And in giving these gifts to this man, to this new man-child, they were making a statement that often goes unnoticed. Of course, we know the gifts that these wise men gave were of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh, and gold makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Jesus was a king. What better thing to give a king than gold, the most costly thing that they could think of? That makes a lot of sense. And what must have been going on in the mind of Mary and Joseph when these three statesmen of power came and worshiped their sons bearing precious gifts of gold? But the next two gifts make us scratch our head a little bit. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is it that these wise men chose frankincense and myrrh to give a baby? Well, frankincense and myrrh are very interesting. You find frankincense mentioned quite a bit in the Psalms. David was a fan of frankincense or spikenard, so to say, a little bit different, but virtually the same thing. Frankincense and myrrh, two different herbs, two different items that had to do with smell. When we think of myrrh, however, there was really only, to my understanding, one use of myrrh in scriptural times. And it had a very morbid use. In fact, when a few of us were in Egypt just about a year ago, in the museum there in Cairo, there were actually quite a few different basins or different vials that were full of this myrrh product. Myrrh was the ancient equivalent of what we would call embalming fluid. Myrrh was a symbol and a tool that had to do with preparing a body after it had died. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that these three wise men, or we assume three wise men, brought a child embalming fluid. Now, not to be even more morbid still, but this is the truth of the matter. When the embalming process would take place, especially in biblical times, that would come with a certain odor. An odor that was, as you can probably imagine, unpleasant. And so often when the people were embalming a body, they would use frankincense to light and it would make the area smell a lot better and it would mask, well, let's just say the stench of death in the room. Frankincense was used for other things as well. It was used, of course, in the sanctuary we know. It was actually sprinkled on top the table of showbread as that bread was broken, which is an interesting symbol in and of itself. We don't have time to get into that today. But my point is, why is it that these wise men would give Jesus, the Messiah, a mere baby, two different fluids that had to do with death? And the simple answer is that these wise men not only recognized where and when Jesus would be born, but more importantly, they recognized what Jesus had come to do.
In giving these gifts, they recognized and were showing their faith that Jesus was coming with one purpose in mind, and that was to die in the place of sinful humanity. How powerful is that? And I'm sure that Jesus, when he was a child, was shown these gifts from time to time. And I'm sure it was quite a reminder to his family of what the future of Jesus had to hold. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? Imagine growing up and knowing and recognizing very quickly what your purpose in life truly was and what a responsibility and weight that that must have had on the shoulders of Jesus from the age of just a young boy. But this was not the only time that Jesus had been given the gift of a sweet-smelling perfume. Another one of the examples in Scripture that we have is a very popular one. If you'd like to turn with me to the book of John, we find this mentioned again. It's mentioned in Luke as well, but I like reading this from the book of John. John chapter 12, starting here in verse 1, and we find that Jesus has gone to one of his favorite places to get possibly a reprieve or a break from public ministry just for a few days. He comes to Bethany where his friends are, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. We find Jesus here several times in Scripture. It was a place that he could maybe rest and take a sigh of relief and and take a break from the ministry that was very intense. But in John chapter 12, we pick up this story here in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. So this first text basically screams at you, by the way, this is what Jesus had done last time he was in town. Jesus had come into this house of mourning, and he had risen Lazarus from the grave, and I'm sure that that was still fresh on the minds of the household. Verse 2, there they made him supper, and Martha served. No surprise, right, (laughs) if you know Martha. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, or frankincense, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. There's so much here, so much more than just meets the eye. It was traditional in very wealthy families in this time that when they had a dinner party or something similar to what's happening in this story, that as their guests came in, guests of stature, that every one of their feet would be anointed with something that smelled good, often spikenard or something along those lines. But that was only done in wealthy families because that gets expensive after a while. And so this was not something that was common, especially in the house of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. But Mary had somehow a very costly piece of this perfume. And she does not go to the feet of Peter. She does not go to the feet of Judas 
or John or anyone else in the house, but she goes directly to the feet of Jesus and begins to put this precious perfume upon only his feet. All of it. Only the feet of Jesus. Now, let's take a step back here. And there's another interesting point that makes this story come a little bit more alive. And a few of the other Gospels, you'll find this story, and it mentions that this perfume or this frankincense was kept in an alabaster box. Are you familiar with that? It was in an alabaster box. When we think of perfume today, you probably have a bottle of it, and you spray it on whenever you will, and it's like you can use it multiple times. But how this frankincense was used was very different. It was kept in an airtight container or an alabaster box so it wouldn't lose its potency. It wouldn't lose its freshness, its great smelling smell. And in order to use this frankincense, it was a one and done experience. In order to release the scent from this frankincense, that alabaster box had to be broken. And when the alabaster box was broken, then the perfume could be spread and used, but only one time. One very expensive, very dramatic time. And Mary chose to take this very expensive box of perfume and break it at the feet of Jesus and poured out all of its contents on his feet. Friends, today, that is exactly what Jesus longs for his people to do each and every morning. Friends, we need to be broken at the feet of Jesus each and every day, don't we? But friends, I don't know about you, but spiritually speaking here, I don't smell very good. Like that bird that we mentioned during children's story, right? Fits in very well when it comes to how I must smell spiritually in the nostrils of God. Well, it's not a pretty picture. But notice, keep your finger here in John 12 and flip over to 2 Corinthians, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's something special about being broken at the feet of Jesus, isn't there? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15. I love this text. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15. It says this, For we are unto God a sweet savor of who? Of Christ in them that are what? Saved and in them that perish. And it goes on to talk about death or about brokenness. Friends, there's no two ways about it, but in this life, you're going to be broken. This world has a very Well, it's very good at breaking people. Have you noticed? Not in the sense that the Bible is talking about here, but this world has done a very good job 
at breaking humanity down over time. Not just physically, not just mentally, but spiritually as well. But friends, that's not the kind of breaking that God is talking about here in Corinthians or that we find in the story here in John chapter 12. Jesus wants you to be broken so that he can make you whole. Amen? Jesus doesn't just want to put together the pieces of your own heart, but he wants to create in you a new heart. In order to be a sweet-smelling Savior to our God, we must break the box each and every day. We have to be broken at the feet of Jesus. But this is not the only thing that we find that Mary does. It says that she anointed the feet of Jesus not only with this ointment, but with her tears as well. We find it in the other gospel. We won't turn there today. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, it says that she washes his feet with her tears. Now, when I read that story before, I thought to myself, wow, she must have really been weeping to wash the feet of Jesus. Like that's a significant amount of tears to use the word wash, right? Because wash means to, to everything around the foot, to submerge it. That's got to be something else to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears. But we have to look at the culture yet again, because it plays a very important role. We read about it in our scripture text today. It talked about a bottle of tears. Did you hear that? In that time frame in the Middle East, it was very popular at that time for especially women. I've never read about any men that did it, although it may have been done. I'm not sure. But it was very popular for among the intimate items that a woman would own would be something called a tear jar. And what would happen was this jar was crafted to where it matched the cheekbone of a woman right below her eye. And when a woman would begin to cry, she would take this bottle and place it under her eye and all of the tears would be caught in this bottle. And she would keep it not only as a symbol of everything that she had gone through, but it was also thought, and I don't necessarily think this is a good thing, but it was also thought to be medicinal. I don't know about that. But anyway, it was very culturally acceptable for a woman to catch her tears in a bottle. I'm curious if Mary, if her bottle had been full of the tears of maybe her brother dying just a little while beforehand. But Mary, we know, lived a very interesting life, and I'm sure that her bottle was full of tears. Friends, I'm sure that probably none of us today have a bottle of tears at home that make up and show how often and how much we have cried in our past life. But some of your bottles may be more full than the one sitting next to you. Your bottle might be a little bit more full than mine, but that's not the point of today's message. The point is that Jesus wants you to take all of your sorrows, 
all of your past griefs, all of the things that have gone on in your life that have caused you pain. And he wants those things to not only be there at his feet, but he wants you to pour it on his feet. Friends, don't just say, Lord, here's my past. Here are the things that have hurt me. Here are the things that I'm going through. Do with them what you will. But he wants you to pour out your heart to him. He wants to know what you are going through. Friends, for most of us here today, most often when we're going through a time when tears are falling, it's usually done alone. It's usually done in a place of private or with somebody that is extremely intimate with you, someone that you trust. Very seldom do we find tears that are shed in public. And when that is done, it's usually quite an event that has taken place. But friends, when you have cried, God has never not been there. Everything that you have gone through in your past and everything that you will go through in your future that have caused you to hurt and that has caused your heart to tear and that has caused you grief and maybe even weeping, God has been there. And God has spiritually caught every one of your tears. He's seen those tears fall. And if we know anything about the character of Jesus is that he weeps when his people are weeping. One of the most powerful verses of the Bible is that Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, even though he knew that he was going to resurrect Lazarus in just a few short hours. Friends, Jesus is coming back so very soon, and he knows the miracle that is about to take place when he calls his bride, his church home. But he knows that living on earth right now is still a terrible time of heartache. It's still a time when his church is weeping, a time where you are going through difficulties and trials. But please know that you never walk alone, that Jesus longs to hear, and he wants you to be there at his feet. But notice what happens in verse 4. When Mary is in humility at her Savior's feet and breaking everything that she has in the presence of Christ and taking her past and saying, Jesus, it's yours, take it from me. There are people in the room, at least we know there is one person in the room that's angry. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? That such a heartfelt act that this woman is doing causes, well, disapproval in the eyes of one of Christ's followers. Verse 4, we really get into the heart of Judas. He begins to, well, gossip a little bit. Verse 5, we find Judas say, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and bore what was put therein. Then said Jesus, now this is significant, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. Now that's very significant in and of itself. We don't have time to get into that today. But I'd like to read a quote to you here from Desire of Ages, page 559. 
talking about Mary, it says she had sought to avoid being seen. Her movements might have passed unnoticed, but the ointment filled the room with its fragrance and published her act to all present. Judas looked upon the act with great displeasure. Instead of waiting to hear what Christ would say of the matter, he began to whisper his complaints to those near him, throwing reproach upon Christ for suffering such waste. Craftily, he made suggestions that would be likely to cause disaffection. Friends, today, when you're sitting at the feet of Jesus and your heart is being broken and he is building it and you are becoming a new creature, there may be those that look upon you with dissatisfaction. There may be those that look at you and say, man, you've changed. And for that, I say, praise the Lord. Isn't that one of the greatest points of being a Christian is to change, to become more and more molded after our Savior? more and more like Jesus we long to be. Friends, today I pray that each and every morning that we are giving everything that we are to Jesus. I pray that there's nothing in your past that may be holding you back from a relationship with Christ. Pour that out at his feet. He already knows. He knows the sorrow that you've gone through, the sleepless nights, the tears that you have shed alone. He wants to hear. He wants to comfort. Isn't that one of the names of the Holy Spirit? A comforter? And not only does he want to give you comfort, and not only does he want to be an ear that listens, he longs to do that, but he longs to change you and make you into a new and living creature. Friends, I pray that something that is important to us each and every day. When Jesus was there on Calvary, and all the hosts of heaven paused to see their Savior in such torment, and as all of the evil hosts of the devil and his angels were doing their best to get the Savior to stumble. And as salvation hung in the balance, and as the world grew dark, and Jesus felt the presence of his Father seeming to be blocked because of the sin that was on his shoulders, Spirit of Prophecy tells us that he could still faintly smell the perfume that Mary had placed upon his feet. And that smell was enough to give him just a small amount of reprieve from the horror that was happening all around him. What a thought. I want to be that for God. As he looks on our world today, I'm sure that he sees a lot of darkness. We see a lot of darkness. God sees the majority of humanity walking away from him and becoming darker and darker still. But I long to be like Noah. I long to be like Daniel and Abraham. I want to be one of God's men that is still spreading light in this world, don't you? Don't you want to be a sweet-smelling Savior, not just to God, but those around you? That they notice that something is different? So 
only possible if we give all at the foot of the cross. Father, this world may seem like it has a lot to offer, but Father, it only brings emptiness. Lord, the world can have itself, but give us Jesus. Lord, we long to be more like you each and every day. We long to give you and be broken of everything that we have and are, that you may make us and fashion us in your likeness more and more each and every day. May we be a sweet-smelling perfume to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Big Rapids Seventh-day Adventist Church at 1031 Rose Avenue in Big Rapids, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. Or visit the Bristol Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 11-225 East 8 Mile Road in Tustin, and their church service begins at 11.30 a.m. Or visit the Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 17-290 U.S. Highway 10 in Hersey, and their church service begins at 3 p.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.